Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. We're also streaming live at WCEV1450.com. If you are new to Radio Islam, we welcome you, and we also say Ramadan Mubarak to all of, uh, all of the fasters. Uh, pray that your fast is going well, that you are receiving all of the healing and, uh, and merciful benefits of this blessed month. Uh, we are a daily program airing every day from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central, and we're coming to you live from the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois. And as I said, if you are new, you can keep up with us by following and liking our social media pages. You'll find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And you will also be able to find us wherever you get your podcasts. That way you can check out those episodes that you may have missed. And once you hear them, you're going to want to revisit them. So you can also find us at Radio Islam USA. So if you're on SoundCloud, tune in, iTunes, or Google Play, that is where you will find us. And last but not least, if you would like to give us a call. Now, remember, you can get at us on social media, but if you'd like to give us a call, you can do so at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. All right, Radio Islam family. Um, there is quite a bit uh, in the news. And uh, as this is a holy month uh, for the Muslim community, uh, over uh, 1.5 billion Muslims worldwide that are observing this uh, this sacred month uh, where we look to reconnect, uh, reset, uh, to do, uh, to, to engage in uh, reflection and prayer and charity. These are things that, that we look to do, and at the end of the month, we hope to come out of it better individuals, better men, better women uh, than we were when we came into it. But... This is not a month simply of reflection, of fasting, of prayer. It is also a month where we continue to deal with a lot of the, uh, the same ills that, uh, that we faced prior to coming into this month. And one of those ills is we are dealing with not only Islamophobia uh, in, the, in the West, uh, but we are also dealing with outright violence, uh, outright violence that is taking place uh, against Muslims uh, across the globe in, in different spaces. And one of those spaces uh, is, is India. And India is a, uh, models itself as a, as a democratic, uh, secular uh, country, uh, nation. Um, but there was a piece that I, I came across uh, recently, uh, and the title of that piece was India, Violence Against Muslims Reaches Dangerous Tipping Point. And after reading it, I realized that we needed to have some discussion, more discussion, bring more awareness about this. And fortunately, we are, um, we are fortunate to have the, the writer, uh, journalist C.J. Werleman, uh, who is with us. And he is a columnist for the Middle East Eye and the New Arab and host of Channel the Rage podcast. And he's an author of multiple, uh, multiple books. And uh, at this point, we'd like to thank him and uh, greet him. Uh, C.J.? Yes, how you doing? All right. Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time to, uh, to come on and talk with us. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so as I was reading, as I was reading the post, um, I noticed that as India, um, uh, India proclaims itself as a secular society um, and that there seems to be a, a connection in this idea of preserving that, that identity and violence against those who are um, who are open in their faith, not and not even not discounting a history of uh, of conflict in some cases, not all cases certainly, but in some cases between um, Hindu and and uh, and Muslims. Uh, so that being said, how did this come to your uh, to your attention, and what and what were you looking to achieve in in, in sharing this this uh, this news? Yeah, well, well, first of all, you know, it's um, the violence which is taking place in India at the moment, which has been c carried out predominantly by 
Hindutva or Hindu extremists against uh, Muslim populations, Muslim communities uh, throughout the country. This is a new phenomenon, a relatively new phenomenon, which has really uh, taken place uh, since 2014 when Modi's uh, BJP party seized power. Um, What you're seeing is far-right politics uh, on the verge of fascism, uh, scapegoating Muslims as the uh, the cause or the uh, uh, as the cause of the country's social and economic ills, in very much the same way that the Nazi Party in Germany in the 1930s scapegoated uh, the Jewish German population. There, um, the violence has been ratcheting upwards. Uh, and, and to answer your question specifically, why did it come to my attention? Well, I've been following India very closely, um, as you might be aware. Most of my journalism is focused on exposing uh, and combating uh, anti-Muslim uh, discrimination and, and also taking on the Islamophobia industry. And increasingly, and more and more, uh, Indian Muslims are sending me video clips of communal violence, which is taking place in the sending me tweets and emails and messages saying, CJ, can you please uh, give coverage uh, to what's happening here in India because nobody in the Western media seems to be doing it. So... Um, yeah, I mean, it's a story that needs to be told because, as you said in your uh, intro, India's secular democratic um, nature or identity is really under threat by a far-right-wing government, which is really on the verge of fascism and on the verge of, of being of tactically supporting a, a genocide in that country. There's no other way to, to frame it. Yes. And one of the things that you touched on um, in, in this piece in particular was the occurrence of Muslims who have already been victims or where maybe their, their families uh, have been victims uh, but these families are being they're, they're, they are being come back to and terrorized again after they have uh, sought protection or if they're looking to report uh, and this is this is this a commonplace occurrence? It is and, it's, and as I said it's, it's happening with the tacit support of the Indian government. Um, you know, recently an eight-year-old Muslim girl was abducted, uh, gang-raped and tortured over the course of uh, a week or so in a Hindu temple um, by eight uh, Hindu extremist attackers. Um, now, those attackers, those killers, those rapists, have not only been feted as national heroes uh, by the far right and by, you know, basically mainstream right-wing politicians in the country mm-hmm. but the the lawyer who's representing uh the the victim's family has been threatened with death um and you also had yesterday you had a member of the the indian government the member of india's ruling party the bjp uh lead a protest yesterday calling not only for the acquittal of the murderers but calling for an investigation uh into the fact that they were charged in the first place mm. Mm. And and this definitely goes in line with statements that uh, public officials, uh, a minister, I was looking, uh, Vinay Katyar, um, who made a statement that Muslims should not stay in India. And to your to your point uh, regarding um, uh, Asifa, uh, the the eight year old girl, that the 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 individual behind it, his intent was to terrorize. Uh, and drive out the, <clears throat> excuse me, and drive out the the Muslim nomads from the Hindu majority area. Uh, well, at least that's the alleged, uh, the alleged reason behind it. So, um, in your reporting, in in your investigation, are we seeing more, or I shouldn't say are we seeing more, but is this pattern holding up that uh, violence is being used as a way to uh, to push Muslims out? Exactly. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it is a campaign of terror uh, with that explicit purpose to drive Muslims out of India. Um, the, the, that Hindu ideology, which is which is very similar to the Nazi uh, ideology, which promotes the idea of a master race, uh, Hindus being the, the master, you know, occupants of uh, the Indian or the subcontinent. Um, that That is, um, I mean, I've I've written another piece in in the past which has pointed to the popularity of the Nazi Party and also the popularity of Hitler uh, amongst India's, uh, amongst followers of the BJP and RSS, which is a non-governmental organisation, which pretty much provides the DNA to the BJP uh, BJP, uh, as far as their political 
and social identity is concerned. And at the very core of that is this Hindu nationalist ideology, uh, which basically leaves no room for any non-Hindus uh, in the country. And if you look at the, these murders which are taking place, these mob lynchings of Muslims, uh, when these attacks occur, you will not see a single condemnation from any sitting member of the Indian government. Um, so that is really giving tacit support to this violence. Mm. Now, now I'm a bit ignorant as to the composition of India's um, uh, of, of its uh, national uh, elected body. Um, are there uh, are there Muslims that have been elected, or are is the or does it constitute solely of of Hindu or or other? No, there, there are some Muslim elected officials in India's parliament. Um, now, India, you know, has 30-something states um, and, and representatives from within of those states, and obviously states which you have a high Muslim population. There are, you know, elected Muslim uh, representatives in the parliament. Um, but, you know, how much political sway or influence Muslims have in the uh, in the parliament or in polit- politics in general or political discourse is rapidly diminished. It really has been Indian political discourse has really been hijacked by this extreme right-wing uh, high ultra nationalist type of rhetoric, pretty much the same. You know, if you if you think of Modi as Trump and you think of Trump supporters yes. as followers of uh, of Modi's regime, then you're getting a, a pretty good idea of the climate which has been created in here at the moment. Yes, yes. Now, what what do you say to those? And, and it's funny because I had a I had I had an exchange with uh, somebody on Twitter earlier uh, that went on for about I think probably about ten hours. Um, okay. And and it was it was centered around this idea that by naming the attackers, naming the people who have committed these uh, lynchings or who are committing uh, uh, rapes or terrorism, um, by naming them as Hindu extremists, that this somehow is going to push uh, those uh, those who are of the Hindu faith who are. Um, who are, I guess you could say, mainstream or nonviolent or even, or even friends uh, to Muslims, that is going to push them away from acting in such a manner. And, and my, my thought on that was that was an absolutely, uh, absolutely ridiculous assertion. Uh, what do you say to those people? Yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a form of extremism. I mean, this, this violence you know, has nothing to do with Hinduism, uh, the same way that the violence which is carried out by, you know, psychopathic groups like ISIS has nothing to do really with Islam. Sure. Um, you know, the violence which is used by Islam is, is by ISIS is purely political and it's about seizing territory and, and putting more territory and more people under its control. Mm-hmm. Um, Hindutva, which is a perversion of Hinduism, the same way ISIS is a perversion of Islam, mm-hmm. uh, is being used to, to radicalize you know, uh, Hindus um, in a way which is inconsistent with the Hindu faith, but also does it in a way which outcasts or otherizes Muslims as the foreign enemy uh, or as the, you know, the external other. And it's for that reason that um, the rhetoric which comes from the far right in India is and paints India's 200 million Muslims as either agents of Pakistan or Pakistanis in disguise um, or spies, foreign spies. And, uh, you know, and, and you know, we've seen from lessons of history, when you demonize an outgroup in such a way as an external threat, then uh, violence usually ensues. Yes. And, of course, I think uh, for me personally, being uh, African-American and aware of the history uh, of, of African-Americans in the United States and how the media, uh, you know, at the turn of the century, uh, the reporting of Ida B. Wells, how she documented the lynchings of thousands of, uh, of African-Americans, and it was quite often, quite often accompanied by coverage from the media that uh, that portrayed the victims as if they were they were aggressors or uh, portrayed them in ways where their humanity was stripped from them. So I see this very much in that same in that same light. Um, and and, and that, that's very much happening when you look at the media coverage of um, Israel's illegitimate and disproportionate use of deadly violence against unarmed Palestinian protesters in Gaza over the last six weeks. You know, you see Palestinians in the media stripped of their humanity. Uh, You see sympathy expressed by the Israeli uh, soldiers, uh, the attackers, who are under no threat at all from uh, Palestinian protesters who are basically shooting unarmed Palestinian protesters in the back from hundreds of metres away, uh, securely positioned behind 
you know, parapets. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, with that type of dehumanization, that type of otherization uh, is not only happening in the context of Palestinians, it's not only happening in the context of um, black civil rights in this country, but it's also happening in, in the context of uh, the rights of Muslims in India. Yes. And, and let's go back, let's revisit this, this idea of using Hitler, a figure that is um, that will be infamously uh, always connected to the dehumanization uh, of a people of, of of the Jewish people, and the uh, and their and their deaths. Um, how is it, and how long I should say, how long has it taken for Hitler to be uh, become adopted as a symbol of or or a celebrated figure of the uh, BJP? Uh, because I see, I'm looking at in in the, in the in the article, I see a picture of a Hitler ice cream. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it looks like a Hitler store or a little Hitler pub or something like that. Uh, this is not not something that just it, it didn't just happen overnight. How long has that been in the works? Yeah, it's I mean, it's, it's happened from you know, I guess the the late nineteen nineties to the, you know from the early two thousands. Um, the RSS, uh, which is a, a social cultural. A non-governmental organization, which again, as I mentioned, provides really provides a political DNA uh, to India's ruling party, the BJP. Um, they've always there's always had an, uh, uh, an admiration for Hitler and the Nazis because in Hitler and the Nazis they see a strong man who got rid of uh, the undesirable other, and then you know in Germany where the undesirable other was the Jews uh, from a Hindu extremist or a Hindu nationalist point of view. The unacceptable or the undesirable other is India's 200 million Muslims, and for that reason, Hitler is you know is celebrated amongst the far right in India. Um, you know, and as you pointed out, and as I pointed out in my piece, there are Hitler uh, clothing boutiques, there's Hitler restaurants, Hitler ice cream, Hitler pubs, um, and you know this admiration for Nazism um, is also you can, can be linked to the current Prime Minister Narendra Modi because when he was the Chief Minister in Gujarat. Uh, in 2004, uh, the school textbooks, which were under his control in his state, um, portrayed Hitler as a saviour of the German people um, and included chapters under the headline, Hitler the Supremo and internal and internal achievements of Nazism. Now, the current, I'll say it again, the current Prime Minister of India, when he was in control of this state, Gujarat, he allowed textbooks into his state, which praised Hitler and the Nazis. Mm, mm. Now, let, let me talk about... Well, first, I want to say this to the Radio Sound family. Now, we are quite aware that, uh, and just to reiterate uh, a bit of a point that you touched on, that extremism can be found in, in every religion or political ideology, uh, and it is not something that is specific to, uh, to Hinduism. Uh, so, but that being said, uh, we do want to, uh, to recognize that how people are hijacking uh, faith and they're using it to to run counter to the uh, to, to the best uh, expression of their faith. And one of those ways is, uh, as you pointed out, that there are extremists who are dressing uh, as as Muslims. They are putting on uh, clothing that would identify them as Muslims. And there was one. Uh, it looks like it says um, there was a, a gentleman that threw beef uh, at a Hindu temple in an effort to incite violence against Muslims. And for those of you who, if, if you're not familiar with the, the Hindu uh, uh, faith tradition, uh, the, the cow is, uh, is, is sacred, uh, is holy. And so that's, that's certainly not something that would be met with, um, with anything other than uh, disgust or, or, or deep ang- anger or rage. Um, so is this type of thing happening on a regular basis? And what was the, in this particular instance, what was the outcome? Was yeah, well, the, the the outcome in that particular instance, where um, I believe you're referring to, uh, they threw beef at a temple, was it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's just that you know that's a, a common tactic used so that you know by those who who wish to incite communal violence. Um, you know, you can go all the way back. You know, it's been a common tactic uh, since the dawn of age. Um, you know, even even the. Mm-hmm. Um, burning down the, the German Parliament was a way of, of uh, it was used as an excuse to blame communists uh, for the attack. Um, you know, this is a way of you know basically you know a classic false flag attack. I hate using that that um, that term because 
false flags have been used uh, as a term to wrongly smear Assad's war crimes or school shootings right. and the like. But these really are, you know, a textbook example of what a false flag attack looks like. You portray uh, or you basically frame a perpetrator for the, the purpose of inciting violence against that alleged perpetrator. And, and we see that uh, happening uh, more and more in India. Also, it's been exacerbated by social media and Facebook. So what happens is um, in India, a group will accuse a Muslim community of either slaughtering a cow, uh, eating beef, uh, and then those rumours they passed on to social media. And instead of maybe a dozen people believing that rumour, uh, when it's spread on social media, you might have tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands believing that rumour, uh, which just, you know, obviously pours more fuel onto whenever violent attack uh, follows. So, you know, we're seeing the problem that Facebook is having in, in uh, these countries, particularly in Southeast Asia and South Asia mm-hmm. and Central Asia, um, where you have low literacy rates and where you have even lower information literacy rates. Uh, people are, will tend to believe anything they see or read on social media and and you know facebook has been blamed for uh igniting the genocide against rohingya muslims in myanmar mm-hmm. has been blamed for the recent uh violence against muslims in sri lanka and it's also you know uh launching uh a lot of violent attacks against muslims in india you know to to, to that point i think you refer to that as the weaponization of social media and um and, and rightly so has there been uh, to your to your knowledge, has there been a response from Facebook uh, because uh, they were certainly uh, dragged in front of the uh, the, the public uh, the public eye with regard to uh, Facebook's role or you being used as a platform to possibly sway the election, uh, the last presidential election. So are they are they aware of how how their platform is being used? With regard they, to they these are, instances, they, they're certainly aware. When the recent violence against Muslims in uh, Sri Lanka took place, the Sri Lankan representatives from the Sri Lankan government actually met with um, Facebook executives to discuss uh, the, you know, uh, this very problem because it was Facebook which really ignited the violence there. Um, not really a lot Facebook can do. Um, uh, there's a, cl- a, a good example of how this has been combated is is in Germany. Um, Germany, obviously, with its you know history of um, genocide and ethnic cleansing against a religious minority, mm-hmm. um, well, they've banned certain hate speech and they've yes. carried that through to Facebook, and that's really been seen as a model in Europe uh, going forward. So they have you know dozens of full-time employees who scour social media for um, hate speech for for speech which could you know uh, could be used to ignite communal violence. Um, but again, it's difficult because it's whilst it's easy to identify a post which is mm-hmm. CJ. Okay, well, I would say I hope uh, hope you can hear us. I would say to that the the idea or the the, the prospects of being able to use uh, legislation to. To, to, to monitor or to curtail hurts, uh, hate speech, uh, that certainly that works when you have a willing uh, legislative body. And yeah. as of right now with the uh, with the BJP, that's not something that's that's not an angle that would you know that they could really uh, engage in or they couldn't use them to be willing um, uh, uh, conduits. For that type of uh, for that type of pre- uh, prevention to take place, you're exactly right. Yeah. Um, so let me ask: How long have you been? How long have you been following uh, and advocating uh, in this type of uh, of work? Yeah, I've. Uh, I mean, my my history, I guess, is well documented. Um, I I I got into journalism somewhat by accident. I um, I witnessed a. a an Al Qaeda terrorist attack in 2005 um, uh, in Indonesia, and my friends and I were basically first responders. You know, uh, that that night, I sort of became obsessed with that terrorist attack and what would drive somebody to detonate themselves amongst innocent women, women and children. And I wrote a book in response to that, which sort of became a bestseller here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, that book was called "God Hates You, Hate Him Back," and 
And that book, whilst it wasn't about Islam, it, it sort of ridiculed religion um, and attacked religion for its violent texts. Uh, but then I started studying terrorism. I have a degree in counterterrorism now, and, and, and uh, will soon have my master's in counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've come to realize that my thesis that religion drives terrorists or individuals that carry out um, acts of violence against civilians is, is, was flawed and wrong. Uh, I realized that I, I had unwittingly become an Islamophobe in the type of uh, rhetoric that I was espousing. Um, I would use the same sort of Islamophobic tropes that you would hear from someone like Tommy Robinson in the UK mm-hmm. or maybe even Donald Trump or anyone in the far right in this country. Um, so I basically spent the last 10 years, I wrote a book in 2010 called Quran Curious, which was a guide to uh, the life of the Prophet Muhammad and uh, also to the Islamic scriptures, and I was doing the research for that book in particular, which uh, made me realize that my assumptions about Islam were wrong, and I was really basically only regurgitating uh, erroneous Islamophobic tropes. So I've basically spent uh, the last decade trying to right my wrongs and trying to warn others away from a path that I once took. That's, uh, that, that's, that, that's I, don't, I don't think wonderful is a strong enough word. Um, but Thank you. yeah, but that is that is wonderful. Uh, and in seeing that, but there certainly comes a point where uh, you are fortunate enough to reflect on your own thinking, your own position, how you came to that position. Um, and I'd like to transfer that realization to these uh, spaces where we see violence taking place between uh, religions. Um, and what do you think the prospects are for that type of uh, realization? Uh, and reflection taking place uh, on the ground in those spaces? It's very, it's very difficult because you have political and cultural entrepreneurs who who profit um, either politically or financially for, from, you know, creating divisiveness. Um, and that's how politics works. You know, you're always going to have political entrepreneurs which see an opportunity to build a political base by demonizing or stigmatizing an outgroup. Um, Trump did that. Trump had no political base until he accused Barack Obama of being a foreign-born Muslim. Right. I mean, that was his first foray into politics. And by using Islamophobia um, and weaponizing that, that's how he built, built his political capital. Um, if it wasn't for Islamophobia, there's no way there would be a President Donald Trump today. Um, so you're going to have opportunists which are always going to see, you know, there's always going to be divide and rule. You know, colonial rulers in the Middle East um, use divide and rule, um, you know, as a successful strategy to hold them to power with very little, you know, military presence. Um, you know, how you how you better educate a population uh, to guard themselves against these type of sinister political tactics. Um, unfortunately, I don't have the answer for that. I mean, I, I hope and I envision that all we can do is keep creating awareness keep uh, uh, working towards uh, steering people away from those types of ideologies, those types of individuals, uh, and win this on a, on, a, on a case-by-case basis. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, CJ, we need to take a short break. Um, can we do that? And we come back, I'd like to ask a little bit about your coverage uh, with regard to Palestine as well. Yep, sure. Thank you. Okay. All right, Red Islam family, we're talking with uh, journalist C.J. Worleman. And when we come back, we're going to get into our next phase of our uh, conversation. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago-area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141. 0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org Hey mom 
Why is the sky blue? Why don't animals talk? Why do dogs have wet noses? Why isn't 11 pronounced 21? Kids ask a lot of questions. Why do I have a belly button? But you don't have to know every answer. Why is the ocean salty? Because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Why are there 50 states? There are thousands of children in foster care who don't need every question answered. Why is pizza round? They just need you. For more information on how you can adopt, go to adoptuskids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el And we are still broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at WCEV1450.com. Remember, you can keep up with us on social media by following and like our, liking our pages, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. That's the same username you use to get us wherever you get your podcasts. So if you're on TuneIn, iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. Uh, we are joined on the phone by C.J. Worleman. Uh He is a journalist uh, with the, <clears throat> excuse me, and we've been talking uh, in the first half. We talked about uh, uh, a piece that he wrote with regard to the India, with the violence against Muslims in India. And as uh, as one who covers uh, Islamophobia and anti-Muslim violence uh, and oppression, uh, uh, well, I would I would say um, uh, worldwide. Uh, would would that be a uh, correct description? Yeah, uh, CJ. Yeah, pretty much. I think yeah. that's pretty accurate. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, so yes. Yeah, so uh, Palestine, uh, the 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 violence that has been uh, inflicted on uh, Palestinians. Uh, especially with regard to nonviolent protests, nonviolent uh, demonstrations, uh, as you were you, you mentioned earlier, that they are being uh, they're being uh, shot by by snipers, and and this this really puts the 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 person of just regular uh, conscience it puts them in a position where they have to. Well, they hopefully are moving away from this automatic uh, stamp of approval for whatever anything that is done by the Israeli state. Uh, and I'm speaking of that normal, that person of conscience, uh, in particular within the United States. And that has been something that has been, uh, it's been just almost the de facto um, position that that most individuals and certainly uh, our legislature um, ha- has taken. And you have written that those sympathies are changing, and that un- and that unconditional political support is coming to an end. Do you see that starting to play out with regard to the uh, responses of, uh, of of politicians and uh, just people in general? Yeah, you're, you're seeing a, a changing of the guard in the U.S. Um, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, um, you know, whereas. You know, for the past 70 years of Israel's uh, uh, creation or existence, you know, Israel has enjoyed bipartisan support in, for, for most of that journey um, from both political parties within the United States, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. But you're seeing a changing of that now. And so what, because the progressive base, younger Democratic voters, which, you know, are, are providing the energy for the Democratic Party, um, are becoming vehemently opposed to, you know, Israel's, 50-year-long occupation. Uh, they're certainly they can't stomach uh, the illegal occupation. They also can't stomach the apartheid and also the routine and periodic, you know, state terrorism which Israel carries out against the Palestinian people. So you're seeing a stripping away of support amongst uh, the democratic base. Um, you, the, the older faith Democrats like uh, Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's, uh, they'll continue to stand by Israel no matter what. Um, in fact, Chuck Schumer's at the moment, helping co-sponsor a bill in Congress with Republicans, 
which will basically criminalise the, the, the support of the boycott movement mm. uh, against the Israeli state. Yeah, it'd be the yes so, so, which is basically is unconstitutional because the boycott is a speech act, and and uh, you know a speech act is protected by the First Amendment. But uh, the point of being is younger uh, voters uh, don't identify with the politics of uh, the older Democratic stalwarts, um, and so in the next in the coming years, whether it's the next this election cycle or the one after it or the one after that, uh, you're going to see a Democratic Party position or the party platform change to one that strongly and in no uncertain terms condemns Israel's occupation. And then when that happens, uh, Israel will become a wedge issue in American politics uh, because the, the more louder that, or the louder that uh, the left uh, supports uh, Palestinian liberation, the more the right reflexively will oppose it. And once that becomes a wedge issue in, in uh, American domestic politics, then really the jig is up for Israel because Israel won't enjoy uh, unconditional support um, from the U.S. at the United Nations and the level of funding that it has enjoyed uh, for the last you know 50 years will uh, will, will certainly uh, change <laughs> to the detriment of the Israeli state. Mm. And do you think when that when that uh, level of funding changes and that lack of uh, bipartisan support uh, changes that that will be the straw that breaks the the camel's back with regard to uh it being an apartheid state yeah exactly i mean you know we're we're at the moment u.s taxpayers give israel 10 million dollars per day um you know and most of that money is used by weaponry while israel provides its own citizens with universal health care something the americans are deprived of um so we're giving uh, away our weapons for free uh, our tax money away for free and we're getting nothing in return for it um so that's one side of it uh, but also, the U.S. has uh, protected Israel at the United Nations with a veto power at the right. Security Council. Mm-hmm. Once that veto pen uh, is removed, or that veto power protection is removed from Israel, and then U.N. resolutions are able to pass, uh, which, uh, whether that's sanctions uh, on Israel, whether that's um, you know outright condemnation of its uh, colonial project, well, then Israel really is faced with one or two options, either comply with international law or be, you know, officially deemed a pariah in the international community, one that is uh, sanctioned and, um, you know, uh, uh, one of which has inflicted massive economic costs upon, uh, the same economic costs which ultimately brought an end to apartheid in South Africa in the late 1980s. Right. You know, speaking of the, the, the late 1980s, uh, we have a... We have a new, I'm not going to say a new demographic, but uh, certainly a, a visible uh, and, um, I guess, growing, the, the, the millennials. Um, and a lot of that generation, I would, I would go so far to say, are not really aware of some of that history um, of apartheid, of, of Jim Crow. And I was looking at a, a, another uh, piece, is that the history... Um, the history of, of of Jim Crow of apartheid uh, that it lasted only for so long, and possibly as they become more aware of that history, that that would also become a part of the uh, of that resistance and that uh, that break with this uh, unfettered um, access to support. What, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean that's that's, that's a very good point. I mean you know uh, you're. It's a, you've got to be aware of history to uh, to change the future. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's that that I'm always skeptical of pieces which uh, demonise millennials as know nothings or are ignorant. <laughs> I think uh, that <laughs> I yeah. think uh, I think those kind of think pieces are uh, have been trotted out as dime a dozen just because basically they're clickbait for uh, for you know for people my age and older. <laughs> yeah, um, we've always wanted to demonise uh, you know the younger generation. As dummies, that's the way it's always worked, and I, and I think they're a lot smarter than that. And you know, I, I think that the Trump presidency has ushered in a new, a new civil rights movement. Um, you, you just have to see that with the, uh, just the amount of people on social media and also marching in the streets in support of civil rights movements today, something which was maybe absent a decade ago. So I, I think millennials are becoming increasingly uh, more politically conscious, uh, aware of the past aware of what needs to be done going forward. And, um, yeah, I think they should be supported. 
Uh, very good point. Very good point. Uh, and I, I want our millennial listeners to know I am not throwing any shade. I am not uh, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, but just just within the context of um, just just being aware uh, of that history. And I think history is also uh, it is also uh, appreciated by those who are uh, who have benefited from it. So I, I guess what I what I'm saying here is that. The system has worked for a few, and those who are aware of how that system has has worked are interested in in preserving it. So uh, that's and and that would be on the side of those who are uh, who have supported uh, uh, Israel um, with no questions. Uh, but as people become aware of uh, have, have become aware that these are not sustainable systems, that these are immoral systems, uh, that. Uh, once, like, uh, to, to go back to what you said, the jig is up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, CJ, it has been a, a pleasure talking with you. Um, I would like to ask, um, how can our Radio Islam family, how can the listeners uh, keep up with you uh, on uh, social media or websites or anything like that? Yeah, it's pretty easy. Uh, my Twitter is at CJ Wellerman. That's C-J-W-E-R-L-E-M-A-N, CJ Wellerman. Uh, they can find me on Facebook. Under the same name. Okay. All right. Thank yep. you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Great. Thank you very much for having me on. I've enjoyed the chat. All right. Bye bye. All right, Radio Slam family. That was C.J. Worleman, and uh, I certainly would recommend uh, uh, googling him and and checking out some of the the work that he has done. Uh, and and I, I'll share this observation with you. Uh, uh, as a and, and I probably should have brought this up uh, in our conversation just now, but there is something to be said about um, it's important that we advocate for ourselves, right? W- whatever we are, I mean, if we are part of the uh, population that is being uh, distressed or oppressed, uh, it's important that we advocate for ourselves. It's important that we take a stand and we take our own, uh, we take our future in our own hands, right? That's that's very important. But it also it is it is a telling uh, truth that when we have people who come from or who look like all right I'll say look like uh, who look like they might be uh, in that group of folks who are a part of the problem who are part of the uh, the, the oppressive uh, structure who actually come out and you find out that these are people who are uh, who are um, in opposition to oppression these are people who actually who are um, who are advocates for uh, for liberation? They're advocates for human dignity. Uh, it is something to be said about how their voices are are, are received, and uh, and I think that has always been true about um, historically. That has always been true historically about any societal shift uh, or changes. Uh, it has never simply just been those who are oppressed that that rise up and and, and fight. Uh, and, and protest, but it has always been people who who are also from the quote unquote uh, don't don't take me to task on this, but that come from the the ruling class, if you will, right? Or who would fit in, or who would not be uh, the recipients of of a, a oppressive uh, measures or tactics. It has always been that when those people join in as well, that it brings that maybe those who would not hear the voices of the oppressed. Uh, that but they possibly may hear those voices. So um, I'm uh, I'm I'm extremely uh, thankful whenever I see uh, people of of conscience, um, whatever uh, their background. Right now, now uh, CJ obviously uh, is is a white man, right? But what he said was he had held, he had basically been indoctrinated into a thinking. Uh, or he held beliefs that were uh, anti-Muslim or uh, Islamophobic, and uh, and that that comes about through just just being in the system, being a part of the system, and not necessarily being um, an informed uh, an informed actor, but just basically repeating and regurgitating the lines that you're given. So his moment of of clarity, as as he speaks about. Um, uh, once that moment came to him, um, as he said, he's taken the, he's taken it, made it his mission to 
undo or to keep people from following in those same footsteps. Uh, and I think that is a position of responsibility. It's a position of um, it's a position that I respect, um, and I think it's one that that is that should be lauded. So um, that being said, it takes humanity to save humanity. Um, it is not just the job of those who have a have a foot on their neck. It's not just the job or the responsibility of those who are being mistreated to fight for themselves, but it's also the job of those who stand as witnesses, who see uh, mistreatment, who see oppression going on. And um, I bring I bring us back to uh, for those of us who are, who are who are reading. Um, I I like to always go back to right. Oh, you who believe, stand firmly for for justice as witnesses to God, right? Uh, even as against yourselves, right? And this is something that uh, is extremely important in the climate that we live in today, where so much of the news we accept or so much of the news that we promote or the views we accept or the views we promote uh, is based upon what is beneficial for us as individuals or our particular group. Uh, It is not what is beneficial. It's not what is best for um, it's not what is best in the sight of Allah. It's not what's best in the sight of God. And if we are disciplined enough or reflective enough to take that type of stance, then really that's the only way to, to get past partisanship. That's the only way to get past special interest. And um, I also go back and tell you, uh, when, when Allah introduces the, the, the Quran to us, he says, this is the book and it is guided sure without doubt. There is no meaning that there is no special interest, there is no particular benefit for any particular group of people, no particular ethnic group, no particular gender, no particular, um, you know, no particular label, whatever it is you want to carry, um, but it is beneficial for those who believe in God, right? For those who believe not just in this life, but in the life to come. Uh, who believe in what they can see, but also realize that there's an entire world that we don't see. So uh, these have real-world application for us. And as we as we opened up the program uh, talking about his uh, the piece that he wrote with, with uh, regard to the violence that's taking place in India, um, we also recognize that that violence is taking place in many places around the world, whether we're talking about the Rohingya, uh, whether we're talking about Syria, whether we're talking about Yemen, uh, or we're talking about issues like mass incarceration right here in the United States of America, or we're talking about imposed poverty. And if you don't understand that that um, that term, uh, maybe we'll come back to it at some other some other time. But we don't understand systemic uh, and institutional oppressions and inequalities, and these are all these all rest on this idea of one group being able to benefit from these inequalities, one group being able to benefit from the oppression, uh, from the pain of another group. And for us to be whole, for us to be healed, we all have to be healed. There is no scenario in a pluralistic society where one group is doing well and another group is not, and there's peace. There's there's no peace in, in, in situations like that. So... Uh, so the prayer during this month, even as we're talking about this news, which is uh, is disturbing, whether um, like I said, pick take your pick, throw a, throw a dot at a map, and you will find uh, upsetting uh, and unnerving situations. But the counter to that, the counter to that is to embrace this idea of being acceptable in the sight of Allah, being acceptable as um, as a witness uh, to justice, right? And a justice that is not defined upon what is beneficial simply for me or for you, but what is just in the sight of God. Uh, and if we, if we get to that point, I think, or if we, if we make it a, a, a focus, if we make it a point to move in that direction, then we will see our politics improve. We will see uh, health improve. We will see every facet of human life begin to improve. Uh, inshallah, with Allah's, if, if it be Allah's will. Okay, I have, I think I've got, I've, I've said enough. All right, so we want to share a few things with you all uh, during this blessed month. 
um, we want to share some of the things with regard to uh, Sound Vision, some of the very important and critical work that we do that is only possible with your continued support. Uh, we'd like to let you know that uh, about the Crisis Text Line, if you are not familiar uh, with the Crisis Text Line, this is a, a line which helps uh, individuals who are in need of, of, of help, and most often this is our texting generation, right? But it's open to all ages. Uh, this is a free and anonymous 24-7 text line, uh, which has 6.7% uh, uh, of the people texting about suicide, while 36% sought help for anxiety and depression. So this has been a resource that has been used uh, by the community, uh, by those in need, and all you have to do is to text SALAM, that is uh, seven four uh, two seven four one seven four one seven four one seven four one. Text salam to that. Uh, we also remind you that Adams World uh, ages. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I, I go back. Excuse me. The Crisis Text Line uh, is helping young Muslims of different age groups in multiple ways. Adams World, uh, age two to seven. We're working day and night to relaunch Adams World uh, to strengthen younger children. And Dawood Warnsby Ali is working on developing new songs for it. So that's something that we're definitely looking forward to. And we also have teachers training ages 8 to 16. So these are the, the youth that those teachers are working with. And 50% of young Muslims of this age face, face huge amounts of bullying. And we need to strengthen them in many ways. And one method we're using is training of their teachers, assisting those who, who are spending uh, very uh, important and developmental uh, in, in time in developing these young people, their, their spirits and their minds. And lastly, uh, we'll mention the media training, college and universities. Uh, we have four media training uh, trainings that are planned, and we plan to do 12 more, 12 this year at campuses where Muslim students and their allies will learn together on telling their story, creating and controlling their narrative uh, through the media. So we're going to continue to talk to you more about this important work and, and ways that you continue to support. But uh, the first thing we can tell you is simply to go to soundvision.com, and you can click on the Donate button. You can see the work that we are doing, we've been doing for over uh, for, for 30 years now, and we look forward to, continue to uh, continuing to serve the Muslim community, uh, its, its future leaders, and we can only do that with your continued support. So we thank you. In advance, and we uh, we pray that uh, we pray that we are, are are worthy and continue to show ourselves worthy of your support. So we want to go ahead and thank our engineer over at WCEV, Ramon. Thank you very much. We thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Bake. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alamin. We thank our guest again, CJ Worleman, and we thank our executive producer, Abdul Malik Mujahid. Uh, that being said, we remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision, Inc. And with that, good people, Ramadan Mubarak, and we wish you a, a good evening, and we leave you as we greet you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.